You're listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, a weekly show about current events in the world of carbon removal, from technology and innovation to policymaking and job growth. Brought to you by Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Carbon Removal Newsroom. As any of our listeners who might have listened last week know, we covered the news that the voluntary carbon markets have shrunk this year. After many carbon offset projects have come under scrutiny, corporate buyers are more hesitant than they once were to invest in them. To prove that carbon removal is worth investing in and better than the status quo, project developers and sellers of credits will need to be able to prove that a credit sold actually means carbon dioxide was removed from the air. It's one thing to do that in a lab when the techniques are being developed. It's another to do it at scale in the field in real world conditions. So today we have Dr. Anna Lehner, one of the people trying to solve this challenge. Today we're going to talk to Anna about how a wide range of CDR methodologies can be measured, quantified, certified, and sold to make it easy for buyers, all while creating more trust in the voluntary carbon markets. So Anna, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to jumping into these questions we have for you. So let's just start sort of at a high level and remind our listeners what Carbon Future is and tell us a little bit about your background. Great. Yeah, happy to. So we call Carbon Future the trust infrastructure for durable carbon removals. That's what we want to build here. And we offer software-based products to help scale carbon removal activities to a climate-relevant level. And we do this by, by building trust across the ecosystem. And we work together with carbon removal suppliers and buyers and certifiers and try to combine this all in a, in a digitally enabled approach. So our products are called on one side, it's, a, it's an MRV plus system, we call it. So that's a system for monitoring, reporting and verification of carbon removals. And we focus on durable ones, but for a variety of pathways that are ready. And we are also a market maker for, for durable carbon removal. So our product marketplace is, is facilitating the delivery of uh, credits um, certified under third-party standards. And we have done that so far since we started in 2019. We have delivered 32,000 tons of, of CO2 removals that have been fixed from the atmosphere, transformed and durably sequestered in carbon pools that don't equilibrate frequently with the atmosphere. That's what we do. My background is, is in chemistry and material science. And at Carbon Future, I'm focusing on, on standards and methodologies. So really on how to implement those quality and process requirements for, for proving that carbon removal has happened into our software and our services. So obviously software is broad, but have you had a certain geographic focus in any way or are you looking worldwide? How do you, how do you think about that right now? <laughs> so we're starting from, from the core of Europe, our headquarters in Freiburg in Germany, and we also have an office in Zurich where there is quite a hotspot for durable CDR right now. And we have another entity in, in the U.S. at the West Coast. We work globally and we have suppliers all over the world. We also have buyers all over the world, but we do, yeah, we, we definitely see software as, the, as a tool to empower global climate action and not just um, develop those more industrialized projects that we have that are typically associated with the industrial carbon removals more 
which typically are, are located in the global north or starting from, from there. So yeah, we, we see digital tools definitely as a, as a bridge into having a more inclusive and, and global effort to really, yeah, avoid hitting more tipping points on those uh, planetary boundaries for our earth system. Great. Well, let's dive in a little bit into some details. So as I mentioned on our last show, we talked about how carbon markets have actually shrunk in the last year. And there's, you know, a bit of supposition that's partially, that it's partially due to the loss of trust in most carbon offsets. So you were talking about generating trust through software and transparency. And, and can you dive that into a little bit more detail and the type of evidence that you guys rely on for your MRV platform? What, what we see in the market, so seeing the carbon offset market as a whole shrinking is something that we, yeah, interpret as, as really making room for something else to, to really grow and evolve, which is still nascent and smaller. And, and by that, I mean, it's, it's definitely, we see a growing uptake of, of volumes for those durable carbon removals where we really have permanent or, yeah, very robust carbon pools that, that CO2 is eventually being put in. And we also are making a, a good progress, I think, on, on the MRV, on proving and on gathering more data to really um, document for the buyer um, in, a, in an end-to-end look-through of what has been happened, what has been done, what kind of activities really, yeah, resulted in this removal that's promised. And there has been a lot of difficulties with proving that and, and offset has been have been sold, but that really shouldn't have been sold. And, and projects have been uh, poorly monitored and, and poorly controlled for their actual outcome. And this is a problem. And we definitely don't have time anymore for, for bad carbon offset credits whatsoever. So I, I think we, we see a shrinking of, of that part, and that's a good thing. And we really need to now focus on, on two large families, maybe, of, of projects going further. And one I see those projects where we really have a very clear model of how we can monitor, report, and verify, and how we can translate what's happened in the real world into a, a specific amount of certificates or of CO2 equivalent tons to issue. And the other part of, of projects that is also super important are those who are a bit less easily measured. It could be, yeah, projects to foster biodiversity or, or re regenerate natural ecosystem, have more um, perspective on, on environmental justice or inclusion. And, and now we might not be there to have a very clear model of how tr to translate those real world activities into, into data models and then valorize them in terms of something. <laughs> it doesn't have to be carbon, right? But just something that is really that we have an agreement for. And I think where we definitely need to funnel investments to those kinds of projects as well. And I see that happening, for example, in the SPTI Beyond Value Chain initiative, where really corporates um, are encouraged to put part of their budget aside to not just reduce all the emissions that they can and offset the rest by really balancing them with, with carbon removals, but also of using money to, yeah, drive R&D innovations and advocacy of, of policy development, for example. Oh, yeah. It was so, a long answer. <laughs> no, it was a great, great answer. And I, I 
appreciated you giving an example of sort of a fam- the second family, but is there also an example maybe of the first family of projects that are more or further along in the MRV that that you're thinking about and that um, Carbon Future is supporting? No, of course. I mean, those that's that's what we do. That's our core focus. We we started basically with biochar carbon removal, BCR, as really a, a sweet spot that has a good mix of how we think a durable carbon removal that is really permanent in the right matrix applications, either in soil or also in construction materials. But it has a, a range of co-benefits for those applications. It, it's relatively easily available at both a high industrialized and at a low tech scale. So it can be decentralized, employed and scaled all across the world. And it is ready for delivery right now already. So we see just if you look at the CDR.FYI mid-year report, biochar carbon removal was at 92%, I think, of the delivered credits. And, and that is really what we see happening. That's our go-to. Um, but we're very open to expanding our portfolio to have more uh, projects for for BECs, for example, or so bioenergy carbon capture and storage, and also direct air capture, where uh, an MRV service by a separate provider is really helpful. So those would be probably rather decentralized projects that really need the chain of custody monitoring and tracking of um, the ownership and of all the attributes necessary to calculate the removal, the net removal value. And enhanced weathering is interesting to us as well. All of those where there are methodologies around, they're being evolved and, and defined more clearly, but we're, we're getting ready uh, to really get to, to bigger volumes there. Yeah. So I think when you talk about that span of methodologies, right, they are broad. Every We talk about this a lot on the show, how there are um, challenges in all of them. But when you look at the MRV space very specifically, is there are there MRV platforms or techniques that are coming online right now that are you're most excited about or most interested in pursuing? Mm-hmm. I'll go back. You asked about trust, and I, I didn't really explain how how we see that um, and how we apply it to to MRV. So what Carbon Future likes to do as we build our trust infrastructure is to, to have five different dimensions of, of looking at what, what fosters trust. And, and one is, is quality. The next one is transparency. Then we have uh, innovation, impact, and collaboration. And basically, those are just viewpoints and perspectives that we can, can look at different elements of, of what we build and how we interact with other stakeholders in the ecosystem and then define proof points to improve, to really make it very tangible uh, that, that we're creating um, a product that's more trustworthy. And of course, trust always requires two parties or more. So it's kind of a transmission quality and, and it is a combination of the ability and the integrity and the benevolence uh, between those parties. So if you're asking things that I'm excited about are really, it's not that I'm thinking about a very, very specific type of sensor or an IoT system or, or blockchain or so. So it's not about the tools that I get most excited about, but really about the fact how, how in, in new projects, we can work together to really drive the understanding of who does what, who has which role, how can we 
collaborate in a way that that works best for for each one building this little piece and how can we implement incentive structures that really work against lowering the bar of quality for for removals and of course a lot of those entities it, along the value creation of of a carbon removal could they they feel an incentive to well they would get more money if they issue more credits so it would be easier to maybe not measure that that exactly or that that in depth and I think it's what what excites me is really putting this this machine together that 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 works for for a full consortium of everyone who's needed to to do this together and incentivize all of them through smart governance and smart data interfaces to really work together. So you mentioned SBTI and CDR.FYI, and I don't know if you saw today, but Robert Hoagland released a new um, blog post talking about only like 5.5% companies with SBTI targets have purchased carbon removal. So how do you envision this work that Carbon Future is doing in helping drive standards and bodies like SBTI to include carbon removal, foster the growth of carbon removal? Mm -hmm you know, make it a, help it become a more vibrant in industry? Yeah, that's a great question. And of course, as a, as a young company, it's, it's always the interesting bit is, is to find a blue ocean, right? To, to find, to build a product that is not really where the market is not existent yet. And, and we're kind of, the, of course, always on this, on this wave of, of trying to build something from a, for, a, for a scale of a market that is not really here yet. That's what's exciting, but also, of course, very difficult in a, in a way, because as you say, the, the demand on the buyer side is not created yet. And that's something we, we think we can help build really by clarifying of, yeah, with, with all the entities that are involved, how, how the mechanics of, of successful products work here. Maybe just to step back once again, when we talk about models and we talk about this product of a, of a removal certificate, which is inherently intangible, right? No one, someone could buy it, but no one can really touch it or, or see it. And it's happening somewhere else in the world. And it's, it's just very difficult to grasp. It's, so I think establishing the, the transparency about what we actually deliver is, is key. And my understanding is that to do this and, and to package this product that we can sell as removal credits we have to go in three layers, basically. I, I learned this from Jens Schlicke. There's a great Skywalk CDR community as well. And, and he says that basically you're starting at the, at the level of the primary data of just understanding how can we model this, this process that we're looking at. And it will, ver will be very different if you're looking at enhanced weathering or at soil carbon or at biochar carbon removal. Like what is the data that we can actually get from the world? And then... It, that has a different availability and also you need different ways of, of retrieving the data. And then the next layer above it is how to um, translate it into, in our case, carbon. So everything that's happening needs to be translated in either a, a positive emission or a negative emission. And then we have to really make the balance to, to calculate the, the net removal at the end. And the next layer on top, and then I'll come around to your question, is really how to valorize and how to monetize those things. And this is something that is up 
to us as a, as a community, as a global society in a way. It's not just, we cannot just put it on the shoulders of, of a, a small company to decide what they want to do to offset their footprint or, or to balance any historic emissions their company has caused or not. I think we need to decide as a, as a society, as a whole, that those activities, if they do no harm and we can prove that they lower the content of greenhouse gases in this blanket covering our earth, then this is a, a good thing and that we need to really, yeah, remove all hurdles for this to happen and, and build frameworks and policy and regulation to, to drive, to incentivize and building more of that. So yeah, I think the way to go is really to try to get agreements about what is behind the quantification models and get drive yeah, multi-stakeholder processes to really establish some commonly accepted quantification of, of what we think is high integrity and, and high performance MRV. And once that's done, we can we can base our efforts to incentivize actions and, and funnel investments into those. And that's what we do mostly on, on the policy level. I know you had uh, Sebastian Manhart on the show who, who does a lot of that, making sure that the messages that we think we, we know about or that we learned about get really disseminated to, to a lot of people who can, who can make decisions that impact the lives of many people. So Anna, do you see that as the way to help also consolidate or harmonize the various certification schemes? Because, you know, I think for somebody entering the market, that could also be very daunting. How do you mm -hmm. even think about the various schemes? And then how do you pick mm -hmm. the one that makes, that really develops, delivers the highest quality credit? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's also a great topic. I think about that often. And I think we've seen some progress already just by having three or four or five methodologies under different standards for basically the same type of removal project. That's in itself, in the beginning, it's a good thing because I think that's where we learn if the next version is written, then of course it, it doesn't make sense to to completely, yeah, to do something different, but but things will harmonize and and eventually hopefully we will also not just copy and paste and grab work that someone else has done but we can maybe find a scheme to license those things out or I, I genuinely believe that that protocols of monitoring and reporting should be should be open it should be something that we agree about in, in not just the scientific expert circles but in the larger community and they should be transparent. Of course, for, for startups driving this, it's it's tricky because that's been their their work uh, for for years. And they need to monetize it in some way and they need to profit from the fact that they've been the first to define it. So definitely there's a phase of of having a, a spread out in the number of, of methodologies, but I think we're we're also seeing how it comes back a bit. I, I admire the CCS plus initiative where they are, are setting up their methodologies to be a, a common good and to, to be open. And in principle, another standard can come and adopt them and build them into their guidance framework or governance framework. And the same thing for the European CRCF, uh, the Carbon Removal Certification Framework, that's also built as a general quantification system for, for 
carbon removals that then can be adopted by by national or, or supranational standard holders and implemented. I, I definitely see that coming. We, we see it in other uh, industrial sectors as well. So we're, we're on the way, I'm sure. Yeah, we're still a young industry and a young, yeah. you know, market. And I think it's sometimes easy to lose sight of how much progress we've even made in the three years that I've been around. More chaos, mm-hmm. but also a lot of progress. And I think that's just the natural evolution. So I want to pivot a little bit away from standards now to maybe about the data and the modeling that, you know, underpin a lot of these methodologies and techniques. So could, you know, you were talking about startups and their their need to protect their IP is how I think about it. But Mm -hmm. how do you make data open to allow for good NMRV and how can how do you think about modeling being made more public and accessible and shareable? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great questions. And and again, I think it it really depends on on what and where we place the, this project that we were talking about or this type of project or this pathway in in this whole spectrum of what, where we started out. Of is it something that we have relatively cleanly established MRV? Do we know how to do that? Do we have proxies to measure, or is it something that is so difficult to grasp that we will have to do modeling? For example, oceans—they're so complex and huge, so we cannot measure everything. But once we have established that there is a link between say the pH of the water and it, the capacity to bind CO2 from the air, then we can use that, of course. So I think the modeling, everything is a model, of course, in a way. Uh, the question of, for, the, for the biochar carbon removal case, a, a typical um, job to do is to determine how much carbon is in a packaging unit of biochar. And you could do this either on a mass-based way. So you weigh the biochar, but then you have also to make sure that it's not too wet, or you could do it volume-based. And both is possible. We have the relation of density to mass and volume, right? That's the model. That's the, the truth behind it, that we agree. And it's true. So there is still the need, even if the model is there and, and people believe that it's true, we need to go in and check, if it, get some reality check of, of if that is actually what's happened. And and I think that's the part where we will always need direct measurements. And ideally, we have good models and people trust them and they have enough data points and cross-checks to, to really establish them as, as a model that the general expert domain believes is, is true. But I don't think there is any way to establish this common ground of acceptance without making them public. And, and and that's why we probably need to to funnel more money into research and development to really encourage scientists first to to tackle these problems and and focus on this kind of of big humanity challenges and and secondly to really incentivize people to to put bread into their hands for doing the work that is not just for their individual economic benefits but from a for a greater cause in, in a way yeah it's almost like modeling needs to be held within the public domain and then the use yeah. model or the creation of the carbon removal credit can be where you compete as a as an industry or as a whatever yeah. 
Yes, I think that's great. And, and we're just at different evolution steps of these models. In the beginning, in the beginning it will be harder to, to do that and, and force people to open them. But eventually it, it will happen. And it, yeah, that's, that's the... Certainly, I think the EU has <laughs> political and policy ability to do that in a way that's probably very different from the U.S. and the IP laws that we're under. So it'll be really, an, I think, fascinating to watch how the different regimes mm. approach this. So I want to move a little bit now to talk about Carbon Future very like kind of directly. So mm-hmm. know what you talked about is your one of the goals is to really automate the purchasing process to make it both easier in, uh, for buyers and sellers. So when you think about that, how do you think automation relates to MRV, especially particularly mm-hmm. the carbon futures work? And how are you specifically working towards uh, that goal? <laughs> so to, to address this, I think it would be easiest to look at the point where we still have pain and bureaucracy and work piling up. So I'm focusing on the bottlenecks and then we can talk about how we think we can solve them. And, and definitely, I mean, the inherent problem is that we have a couple of standards, even if there are 10 or 15 or however many in the voluntary car market or beyond, it, it is a very, very small number of standards that make the rules. And it must be a tremendously larger group of, of project developers. And we need hundreds of thousands of people doing that in order to scale carbon removals 5,000 times by mid-century. So there is definitely this one-to-many relation. <laughs> and to aid there, I think we we need to try, yeah, we need to, it, you know, in a, generally speaking, allow decision-making where the information and the capacity to make decisions is. So if if someone knows about their projects intimately because they're they're building a factory and they know what how much energy it consumes and they know how big it is. Those are the parameters they can easily provide. Um, however, they might not be familiar with the scheme of carbon accounting that's behind some, some methodology out there. Ideally, we would have an automated way of combining the input that people know about and they can easily provide it with some sort of abstraction of complexity and, and an optimization of, of those calculations or of reports. So I don't think we will need hundreds of pages of project design documents in future if we have good forms that take in just the data and the bones of the data, just what we really need, and, and then bring it into a form that can be transported along this data trail until the, the certificate is issued. So the intake of data looking at who can provide data, what kind of data, and then optimizing, of course, the calculations to predict the sink potential is something that can be useful, but you can already estimate how much you will get. And then you can use that for your business modeling as well. And then we can also automate the way that validation and verification is happening. We're not quite there yet, but I I have great hopes in the future. Again, I think if we put a big map of hundreds of pages of a written PDF or so in front of an auditor, it's hard for them to actually say that is good if, if it adheres to the, like, if, yeah, if the data collected complies with the model that we have agreed upon. Because it's, it's just not, 
how a decision for a human brain works well, but we could allow machines to help with that by yeah, doing some complete list checks or, or doing image or text recognition on data and, and really providing some of the decision-making preparation for people um, to, to speed that up. That's another part. Of course, linking all those different data systems and IT systems of the entities connected can be automated. We can use application program interfaces, APIs. We can link into software systems that, that suppliers use to, to manage their, their business ERP systems. And that's what we've been doing at, at Carbon Future as well. So in general, yeah, digitizing and optimizing is, is something that we can use all over to, to create a, a faster and more robust and efficient and enjoyable process for everyone. And hopefully, eventually, auditors, yeah, will have some kind of a data fingerprint, maybe some kind of a hash that's based on, a, on an open and shared model. And they just can check if that is correct and if the data has not been compromised and they don't have to look at each word in a PDF anymore. Yeah. Yeah, the, the PDFs are daunting, <laughs> aren't they? <laughs> So one thing I, we talked about sort of harmonizing standards, and I'm also kind of curious when you, how do you think about equating different types of CDR that offer, offer different timescales with varying levels of sort mm -hmm. of RB sophistication in your current system? I mean, hopefully some of these problems will get worked out over time because MRB becomes more, you know, better for all CDR. But right now, how do you think about that when you're developing these end-to-end -end solutions? Mm -hmm. Yeah, also a, a great topic to think about. I, I really appreciated Carbon Plan's uh, com blog post about comparing carbon removal approaches um, regarding their different timescales. So that's something that comes to mind from your question is, of course, CDR happens in, in such different distributions over time and space. And we have, for example, planting trees or, or re-establishing wetlands and peatlands is something that will either avoid emissions in the latter case or, or build up removals over decades. And the effect will finally then come into play. And the same is for, for um, enhanced rock weathering, of course, if you spread out ultramafic uh, rock dust that has the capacity of of pulling CO2 from the air, it will just gradually build up. And in comparison to that, if you do a, a biomass pyrolysis, if you make biochar, you establish the amount of carbon that can go into a durable sink immediately. And it, that's quite different. Uh, so, of course, we need to look at that. And, and even more, as you say, the, the durability of the sink itself is something that we haven't really been paying attention a lot too. And in a way, I think everything that helps us not hit tipping points mid-century is great and we should do it. And of course we should, yeah, reduce emissions where we can before all of this, just to, to get it out there. <laughs> but this is something that we're st just starting to, to work with. Also, in a way, if I buy a, a carbon sink that is good for a thousand years or 10,000 or 100,000 years. It doesn't really matter too much in, in the economic system that we operate with because there is no way of, of really um, providing solid agreements 
or, or any sort of legal accountability for this kind of differentiation. So I think it's more about the build-up time of the sink. And the, the second very important um, aspect is how does the carbon reservoir that I'm putting my greenhouse gas into, right, carbon reservoir in this case, CO2, how, it, how is it equilibrating with the atmosphere again? And of course, we also have the problems of, of refluxes. So taking out carbon from the atmosphere doesn't mean that it's just gone. There will be refluxes from other sinks. And this is just, again, where we, our models are not there yet. And in the grand scheme of things, I don't think it matters much. We should still do that. We should establish what doesn't cause harm and then keep doing it quickly and scaling it. And then we can work while we go to, to refine and, and optimize all our models to, to fit what we think is, is reality or is relevant there, yeah, better and better. Yeah. All right, Anna, final question for you. I am curious as such a deep thinker within the carbon removal space, you know, what you think five years and 10 years from now, the industry will look like and what is your hope in, you know, helping build trust and grow this industry? Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> so I think my biggest hope for in five years is that we figure out the, the buyer side standardization of claims. Um, right now, I think from my perspective, we're doing a decent job of establishing what good MRV looks like for, for the production of, of credits. But then what happens with them afterwards, after they're bought, is kind of, we don't know. We could go into a marketing report. It can go into a sustainability report. But it, it, we just haven't defined what exactly can do, can, can, you can do with the claim for what. Yeah, especially regarding the, the time scales or, or the the yeah the time of a removal from the atmosphere matching that with the time of emission that you cause matching it with the type of emission so if you have methane emissions that that will not last in the atmosphere for a long time you don't have to compensate them with long term sinks but you could use something else so having a better matchmaking between the supply side and the demand side regarding what claims can be made and and I think that definitely needs, maybe that will be the 10-year prospect. Right now, we have a couple of good tools and ideas. For example, we develop frameworks of how to quantify, but we might not have all the other elements in place that really empower or, or require that people use these frameworks. Right now, a lot is still based in in these voluntary carbon market schemes, and we can prove that that it's working. It's a great sandbox. We can we can see what people need. We can build products. We can, yeah, build how we sh how we would always to alleviate pain and and build gains. But we won't really reach that scale at all if, if we don't get ourselves into a compliance scheme and really have have regulation either through a, a market system or a tax system or, or other kinds of instruments where I'm not an expert, but I think we need that part um, to really come in. And it's been difficult just managing the change and, and getting all the parties on board to make those decisions, especially in the, in the political 
background of the world where we live. It's, it's super challenging, but I, I have hope that we um, have something that is more of a coherent carbon removal policy landscape in 10 years. Well, Anna, thank you so much for joining us today. As always, whenever we have anyone on from Carbon Future, it's an interesting and stimulating conversation. So I so appreciate it. And, you know, if you ever want to come on in the future, just let us know. <laughs> thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom. If you like the show, the best way you can help us is by giving us a great rating and review in Apple Podcasts, following the show on Spotify, and by sharing the show on social media. Tell your friends and help us spread the word about what's happening in the world of carbon removal.